It's time to talk about Las Vegas with Ira. Each week, Ira David Sternberg talks with the celebrities, entertainers, writers, and personalities who make Las Vegas the most exciting city in the world. And now, here's Ira. My guest is actor, producer, writer, and director Tim Molyneux, performing in Swoon, Croon, and Boom, the Songs of Love in the showroom at the Nevada Room this Tuesday, October 19th, and this Friday, October 22nd at 7.30. For ticket information, go to VegasNevadaRooms.com slash entertainment. And for everything about Tim Molyneux, you can go to TimMolyneux.com and follow him on Facebook. And Tim, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. Very glad to be here. Many people in Las Vegas associate you with Bite, which was Las Vegas's first and only vampire show that ran nine years on the Strip. But you're also, as I mentioned, an actor, producer, writer, and director. What was your fascination with vampires? Well, I started out, I always have been a big fan of Anne Rice. Anne Rice novels, her witches novels and her vampire novels. And then there was the movie Interview with a Vampire that came out. But it really started with coming to Vegas to see, because I wanted to be a producer. One of my goals in life, my bucket listings, was to be a Las Vegas producer. And so I came to Vegas to see what was working, what, what was not, what kind of shows were successful with a long run and that kind of thing. And then I had discovered that there are certain things that, I guess, traits or tricks or little things that happened during shows that were common amongst the shows that were successful. And so I kind of put those together and try to figure out what has not been done here in Vegas that allows you to do all the things that help make a successful show. And vampires came top of the list. I mean, it's a international subject. You don't have to have dialogue. You just get it. People are afraid of them. People love them. And they can do all the things you want to do in a Vegas show. They can be sexy. They can fly. They can have power. They can sing. They can dance. I mean, they can control people all the fun things that help make a Vegas show. So that's kind of why I came up with it and why I did it. And fortunately, it was the first and still is the only vampire show in Las Vegas. It's funny, too, because you're right. Some people are scared of vampires, so you don't think of vampires as necessarily entertaining. But clearly, the fact that it ran nine years on the strip, you made vampires entertaining. Yeah, it was fun. Luckily, we were before the vampire craze uh, with True Blood and... uh, you know, the vampire series and the movies that came out and Twilight and all that kind of stuff. So we hit the timing great. And I think the other aspect that helped make the show popular was uh, I used uh, classic rock music. I mean, who doesn't love Guns N' Roses, Led Zeppelin, Ozzy Osbourne, Kids, Black Sabbath, Aerosmith? I mean, it's all great 80s, 70s classic rock. And uh, so that, that, uh, that was also before Rock of Ages. And that was before the Mamma Mia's and the things that use soundtracks out there. And so it just, you know, I here again, I try to get a formula that mass market people in Las Vegas would hopefully want to go see. And last question about this subject. Were you surprised at the reaction to bite in the sense that it was on the Las Vegas strip? It was appealing to a mass audience. Uh, I mean, surprising that, People wanted to go see it. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think I think were you are were you surprised at the success of Bite, given the subject matter and the fact that it was on the Las Vegas Strip, and as you said, it was appealing to a mass audience. 
Yes, but in a in a different way. The, the original vision of, of Byte that I, that I wrote that I actually submitted to people around town to the different hotels around town was not the Byte that was actually produced. The original Byte was much much bigger with a huge cast and we were flying over the audience, fighting like the Matrix over their heads, fire and uh, it's a big a big production. But there were no open rooms that could house that kind of dream or vision or goal to have that kind of show but the stratosphere had a spot a late night spot and he said you can have it but you have to share the theater with two other shows and you have to tear down your show every night oh and by the way you have to set it up in 15 minutes every night so so the original vision was not able to be executed because there was no home for that original vision so i was surprised to answer your question i was surprised that this version of the vampire show was successful uh, maybe that's a good thing. Maybe the big vision, the large production, uh, might not have worked as well. But this simple, simple set, you know, a cast of 12, 13, you know, nothing really crazy as far as production value goes, it, it worked. So it's a the original vision. I had a vi- yeah, a blessing. I had a vision that the audience members would come out after the show and a great marketing tool would be to have them come out with bite marks on their neck or what looked like yeah. bite marks on their leg. Yeah, why didn't you, you call me and tell me that? You're That'd right, you're right, you're right. I should have, and I, <laughs> yes. <laughs> next time. Yes, next time, exactly. Yeah. A quick COVID question, because you are involved in so many different areas of creativity. Did you find it challenging as an artist to create during COVID, as it obviously still continues, but not as bad as it was? Yes, yes. The the ability, because some of my uh, work uh, was coming from what I call as a show doctor, where I work on artists and production companies' live shows and kind of see where they are, assess it, and help them you know achieve higher margins, but yet hitting the targeted demographic. And that kind of went away almost completely. But during COVID, I actually got more opportunities to do my writing. I was hired as a writer for some screenplays and scripts and poetry and things like that. So I was able to, to write and submit things that would be either A, produced in the future, or just was actually something for a more story and concept driven, but wasn't necessarily a live production. So as far as producing and creating, COVID gave me an opportunity to uh, create on paper a lot more, and uh, was, people were re- requesting that a lot more. So now you're currently looking at once again, performing in the role of a singer. And mm-hmm. you're going to be, as I mentioned, in a show called Swoon, Croon, and Boom, The Songs of Love, in the showroom at the Nevada Room. And number one, how did you find the Nevada Room? And you could tell people what that, because this is a new venue. It's an off-strip venue, a very interesting one. And there's also the Vegas Room. So you're going to be performing there. But why did you decide to start performing? And why did you decide to pick certain songs that would be Swoon, Croon, and Boom? Okay. Well, I was first introduced to the Nevada Room a couple months ago, and I went to go hear some friends of mine sing there. I'd heard about it, and I just went to go. I was here in um, Las Vegas uh, a little bit more time now than than previously because I used to be back in uh, Los Angeles more, and just heard heard them sing and heard the show. And they asked me one of the times I went, spontaneously said, hey, uh, Tim Molly's in the house. Go and sing. Sure, sure. Yeah, I can do something with somebody I don't know. Oh, yeah, we'll do it. <laughs> so uh, I sang, and the response was 
I guess, great, and it went over really well. And then afterwards, the uh, president there and uh, one of the co-owners, Tom, asked me, he said, hey, can you come do a show here? I was like, uh, sure. Uh, I didn't tell him I haven't done a show in many, many years as a singer, but I just, it felt right. It felt good. And I went with my heart and said yes. And so now I am. And, uh, but the Nevada room is, is a really, really cool, cool location. It's a, it's like a classic supper club. It's a totally renovated building right there in the heart of the old commercial center down on East Sahara. So it's right off the strip. So. Yeah, about right off the yeah. strip. Yeah. Yeah, about a mile or so behind the um, the Westgate Hotel Casino. And it's, you can have dinner there, and you got a full bar and cocktail and drinks. And, uh, and they really designed it like the old classic supper clubs. And they got uh, multiple stages, great sound. The sound has always been wonderful there. I really love the sound from the singer's perspective and the audience. And uh, they're intimate, but yet they can still hold enough people where you feel like you got a, a nice, warm crowd around you. And the energy is really wonderful. And you can eat there or just have cocktails or just come and hear the show. It's really a wonderful venue. I was thinking about the fact that there seemed to still be, and I talked to Castellamitas, one of my previous guests recently on the show, John Castellamitas, who writes for the Las Vegas Review Journal, for any of our listeners who, who are trying to figure out who I'm referring to. And we talked about the the concept of ve- venues off the strip, small venues that can support local artists. And there seems to be more now than five, ten years ago, whether it's the Italian-American Club or the Nevada Room or the Vegas Room, and, of course, the bootlegger and you know, the smaller room Myron's at the Smith Center. So there seems to be a renaissance of that type of venue for local, primarily local artists. Yes. As someone who has been in Vegas since 2003, you know, full-time and then part-time, back and forth, but really, I think, tapped into entertainment, you're right. It's not just a little more than 10 years ago. I would say it's almost tripled uh, what it has been, the intimate venues like this. And I think that is just the, the pendulum, I think, also. I think people want that intimacy, audiences. I think they want that connection. Sure, there's always a place in Vegas for the grand $100, 200000000 million production shows. Sure. Absolutely. you you got to have some of that, and it will always be there. But what I think made Las Vegas popular and, and world famous was the intimacy of having local artists at the time or even international artists sing at these supper clubs where you can be intimate with the artists and you can see their expressions on their faces and feel their energy and look in their eyes and have that intimacy that you can't get on that large grand stage. And I think there's been a... a resurgence of that, maybe because of, of COVID and people are clamoring for that intimacy that they may or may not have appreciated before COVID that I think we all appreciate now, the fact of being more connected to our family, friends, our community, our, our fellow musicians. And I think that's part of why it has become so popular. That makes sense. And I'll also mention the space as well. So Mark Chinook's yes. operation, and he's been on the show recently as well. Yeah, so your your original version of Byte would not fit into the Nevada room <laughs> or, um, even the, the, or even the newer version. <laughs> no, no, no. I, you know what? You know, no hotel that I pit, man, this was the MGMs, theater people, it, they all said, wow, great idea. No one's done Vampire. I, I love it. I don't have a venue for it. But yeah, I, I wish and I hope that there could be that uh, that grand place for that grand type of show. But here again, 
but maybe next time. So while you're working on this show, how do you decide what songs to include and from what era? And obviously the genre as well. You have to make certain decisions. How do you, what's the process for that? Well, for this particular show, because it is a sh- it's my own concert, and I haven't done a concert in many, many years, I haven't done my own show in many, many years as a, as a performer, I wanted to sing songs that meant something to me. Uh, I've been through, we all have, uh, a lot of things the last decade, the last <laughs> two decades. And to get an opportunity to have a concert that's intimate, that's the first one is like it's a relaunching kind of thing for my performing side of my life and my career. I wanted to choose songs that meant something to me, some of the pains and the, the struggles, but also the triumphs and the, the glory uh, that I've experienced and the, the, the hurt and the heartache that I've experienced over you know, the last decade or so. And um, in general, my style, I guess, is also more classic. It is more 50s, 60s, 70s type of uh, vocalist kind of thing. So the songs that I tend to sing just every day or just kind of in the shower tend to be the that era and that genre. So putting a, sh- a show together like this, Songs of Love, it's really all the aspects of the things that I've gone through here in my life recently. And when you put it together, are you, how do you envision the backup? In other words, will you have a a pianist, or will there be a trio, or will it be tracks, or how will that work? Well, every show, like I said, is different. This particular show, the rooms there, at the batter rooms and the stages, you can have just a piano, you could have a trio or a horn section or whatever. I really wanted this first show intimate, stripped down. I mean, if I could play the guitar well, it would have been just me and the guitar, but I, I don't play very well. And so uh, I chose to have just a piano for this particular show uh, because it is more intimate and it is raw and it's just the music and, and me kind of thing to where I can feel more of that energy as opposed to the production value, per se, of a large band. I love doing large bands and uh, having the horn section, and I hope to do and intend to do shows like that in the future. But this first show, Reintroducing Myself, back as this type of performer, I wanted it more intimate. So the choice was just a, a piano. So you are going to expand it at some point and maybe take it on the road, not just in Las Vegas, but even maybe take it on the high seas because you have a background in producing shows for cruise ships. So do you see that working in that area as well? Yes, I've been involved with the cruise line industry since the uh, mid-1990s. Celebrity Cruises, Crystal Cruises, Royal Caribbean, Queen Mary 2, um, various cruise lines, and more as a writer, director, producer. Um, yeah, I would like to do that. I hear again that right now in my life, it's important for me to do the things that I love, if I can <laughs> afford to do them, and to be around the people that I love doing it with and the people that I know that love me. And so I would love to have this song, this show, uh, be able to go out on the high seas or on tour or here he- he- locally. Uh, even back from my hometown, maybe, or back in Nashville. I spent a lot of time back in Nashville. But it's really important to me that wherever I do it, it's just part of I'm loving doing it, and I want to do it, especially this particular show, because it is so personal. It seems that a lot of performers are going through what you're going through, and maybe it was induced by COVID and maybe just by life in general. But a lot of artists are looking at being as authentic as possible in their 
presentation or in their performance, and it's more of an emotional versus facade kind of presentation. Okay. Yes, I agree with you. There are artists now, even here in Vegas, that still do that flash and the it's all smiles and teeth and glitz and glamour and, you know, flashy. There's still that. I think there will always be a place for that. Maybe they, maybe that's just who they are. Or maybe they, they're hiding behind that. Or maybe that's just entertainment. I mean, whatever that is, that's, it's working for them and that's what they do. But I agree with you that, especially since COVID, that intimacy, that being raw and coming out and, and seeing how vulnerable we are as not just musicians uh, or artists, but as humans. And how precious life is and how the moments that we have to share and or to give uh, to others is, is counted. I mean, those days are counted. Those moments are counted. And the value of those moments have been really brought home uh, in this COVID time. And I think that there are some artists that are serious about that and that really feel that need to, to, to be vulnerable. And I think there's power in being vulnerable and exposing who, who we really are and the core of our art and our music and our love. I think it could work very well both on a personal level and on a performance level. I think you're right. I think, I think audiences react to a performer when he or she is not just flash, but giving of themselves. And yes, there is, as you said earlier, there is a room for the entertainers who are flashy because there's just always going to be a market for that. That, that's yeah. a whole, yeah. You started early. You were at the age of five when I believe it was your grandfather. He was a Southern gospel Pentecostal preacher. He, he let you sing on stage before his sermons. Yes. I am from the deep, deep South in Mobile, Alabama, New Orleans area. And my grandfather was a Pentecostal preacher. And uh, I was five years old. I was always singing around the house and just singing different things to the radio, even as a you know, three, four years old. But he gave me the opportunity to sing at, uh, at his church on stage before his sermon, and it went really well. People seemed to be moved by it in a positive way. <laughs> I guess you can get moved in the wrong way. <laughs> but, uh, and uh, it worked out, and I started doing it again and again, and that grew. And, but yeah, he, he uh, definitely gave me the opportunity. And all throughout my elementary, grade school, high school, college year, I, I was singing. Singing and dancing in show choirs and operas and churches and musicals and theater just kind of happened organically and uh yeah thanks to my uh my grandfather there have you ever thought of adopting just for performance purposes or maybe you did as an actor a different kind of accent perhaps a, a brooklyn accent um my russian accent is not good but i try it sometimes so there are some <laughs> some that i i do that's not good and every now and then i can get that real good country where you just talk a little bit you know you got a truck in the back and so you can do that or you know mia familia grandissima italiano molto bene grazie you can do you know a little bit back and forth that right. i had to use in some of my some of my stuff <laughs> when you were looking and growing up in the business did you have any particular role models or people that you look to for, if not inspiration for technique or just to learn things from them? Yes, I had two big idols slash gods slash mentors because I studied them, studied them. I wanted to be them. Number one, for technique and just the instrument and the sound and the control 
and the power and the majesty of the voice, Luciano Pavarotti, un, you know, hands down, no one compares in my, in my world, in my view, uh, for that. And as far as the showman and the entertainer and the, I also wanted to be Elvis Presley. In my mind, those were two iconic people that really, really inspired me. I wanted to sing their songs. I wanted to be them. I wanted to tour like they tour. I wanted to sing where they sang, sing how they sang. I know there's kind of a, there's a great dichotomy there, the pure classical and rock and roll, but that's really, I think, who I am. And I really had both of those worlds growing up. And it's funny because you don't see too many Pavarotti impersonators, but you do see a lot of Elvis impersonators. <laughs> That's true. That's true. I, you know, I think probably because not too many people can do it. <laughs> I think so, too. Uh, probably. I mean, he was a monster. Yeah, there's some great opera singers out there and classical music singers. And we got the pop singers now, you know, the Josh Rubens of the world and the, even Andrea Bocelli, a fantastic, amazing, beautiful, artistic opera singer. But he's not Luciano Pavarotti. He doesn't have that massive, barrel-chested beast of a sound that he could control on a dime and so yeah, maybe because uh, it might be hard for some people to, to do that. I would imagine of the two, you might have had an opportunity to meet Elvis at yes. some point, or at least watch him perform live. Well, I have watched him many, many, many videos, but I never had the opportunity to actually uh, watch him live. That was definitely a, a regret. And Pavarotti as well. I wanted to see one of his concerts live, but never, never did. I was never able to do that. But uh, yeah, those were definitely on my, were on my bucket list things to do. When did you decide to move to Las Vegas, and what was the reason behind it at the time? I know you referenced it earlier on in our conversation, but if you could expand on that a little bit. Sure, sure. Uh, well, since, like I said, the mid-'90s or so, I, I was producing for cruise ships in the early 2000s and that era. I really wanted to be a Las Vegas producer. It was, it was a, a big goal of mine. I wanted to, People said, you can't do that. <laughs> sure, Tim, everybody wants to do that. It's just like, you want to be president of the United States, too. Great. So... I said, well, I want to do it. So I came to Vegas initially in 2003. I tried to come at least once a month or so to try to just see what was out there. And then within six months of coming out here and seeing what was there, I started, I wrote the show uh, and I started pitching it. And then the show opened in 2004. So I initially came to be a producer in Las Vegas, 2003. And the, the bike show opened in 2004. And then I've been here ever since. So you got bit by Las Vegas as well. I did. I did. I, uh, I have to admit, I fell to some of the vices early on. And, uh, but I have since seen the light and got out of that. <laughs> and uh, out of the neon lights there, that is. Right. But yeah, well, I did also fell in love with uh, like poker, Texas Hold'em. I loved it so much that I actually wrote a poker musical in Las Vegas here in 2008. And we did it at the World Series of Poker. So I guess some of it was still there, but yes, I definitely got bit by the uh, Vegas bug. What's the most enduring memory you have of Las Vegas in all the years you've been here? Hmm. Yeah. Uh, well, the opening night of my bite show was a little surreal to say that it happened and the press was there and the opening night, even that show wasn't very good. It was, it didn't go well. Things didn't happen. Uh, the writing wasn't good yet. And, you know, sometimes you got to, I didn't know at the time, just being the naivete, that in Vegas you don't open the show without having some kind of cold runs first, you know, some practice runs before you invite the press. 
I didn't know that. I invited the press the very first night. Can go on down. Congratulations. Before you work out anything. And so it got panned and it, people were like, this is crap. But I didn't know you had to be open for a month or two months or six months like Cirque does before you actually show the public anything. Well, Tim, but I think it's that, like you, as, it's, it's as if you have to open off Broadway before you get to Broadway or out of town. Yeah, that's true. That is true. But I didn't, I didn't know that. You know, our, our, the cruise ship things that I had done, those big production shows, those were cruise ship stuff that uh, we wrote and produced there were 20-foot-high set pieces, you know, cast of 20, 20, 22 people. We did fly over the audience. We did shows in 3D glasses and 3D where the dancers were in 3D costumes. So they were very in 1,200-seat, 1,500-seat theaters. So there was a very, very grand, but the Vegas experience, to answer your question, that opening night was pretty spectacular. It really was. Another big night uh, was able to hear Celine Dion live. She just took my breath away, and I was, you know, in chills uh, most of the the, the show. And uh, to hear her vocally do what she does on record, to hear her do it live or even better, was, was very, very inspirational. And then the third most memorable thing would be seeing O at Bellagio for the very first time. I cried like 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 a baby. I it was just so artistically beautiful and creative, and it just seemed like it, these performers were just given from their heart and how they staged it and the fire and then the water came and they were there and it just it just moved me and I still refer back to that emotionally. I even use some of those moments in my acting, some of my scenes and things. I refer back to those feelings of watching O for the first time and being just moved and transported to another plane by watching uh, that kind of creativity and artistry in action. Yeah, fascinating. Those are probably the three. Yeah. Before I let you go, the most interesting, and if it's more than one, that's fine, the most interesting Las Vegas character that you've bumped into that people would know. Most interesting character. I'll have two that come to mind. The first one is actually a a friend of mine, Murray, Murray Salchuk, Murray the Magician. Yes, he's been on the show many a time, yes. First of all, he looks, peculiar i think he does that on purpose i'm not saying anything bad but he likes that you know the the blonde spiky crazy hair and the glasses and uh, so he makes that so he's very peculiar his sense of humor his comedy uh but yeah, he can still do magic and he's a nice guy he's a good friend those are things that uh and he's a hard worker too uh, but very interesting character another character i've seen would be carrot top just seeing him walk around the mall <laughs> or in his car or whatever. He's always this thing. He's always this this character, this entity. And you don't know if he's spaced out or if he's making fun of you or if he's having a good time, but he's got this presence that is just, it's funny, it's powerful, and it's great. And he's used it well, and he's been very successful here. And as far as seeing people around town, those are two that, I, uh, that definitely come to mind. Well, that's a great way to leave it. My guest has been actor, producer, writer, and director. Tim Molyneux, who will be performing in Swoon, Croon, and Boom, the Songs of Love, in the showroom at the Nevada Room this Tuesday, October 19th, and Friday, October 22nd at 7.30. For ticket information, go to VegasNevadaRooms.com slash entertainment. And for everything about Tim Molyneux, go to TimMolyneux.com, and you can follow him on Facebook. Tim, thanks for being on the show. Thank you, I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on here. I had a great time. Thanks a lot. See you next time. You've been listening to Talk About Las Vegas with Ira. 
Each week, Ivor David Sternberg talks with the celebrities, entertainers, writers, and personalities who make Las Vegas the most exciting city in the world. Anything you want us to be, bring us your fantasy.